things I want to make sure I hit on before, uh, before I get started today. I also want to remind you that uh, for those who have students in the 6th and 12th grade, we have anchor students uh, this Friday night, so make sure you come out for that. And the other thing I just wanted to make sure and just to clarify, because I don't want to offend anybody who is um, cheering for the 49ers today. Um, but the song we sang called With Everything, there was this part that said, whoa. Now, I just want to let you know that that was no way endorsing the Kansas City Chiefs. And you didn't see us doing this while we were singing it. So um, just want to make sure that you're very clear on that. I, don't want to get any angry emails, um, but that was just part of the song. I did not pick that on purpose in any way whatsoever. So, uh, wanted to make that clear. Uh, on a little more serious note, I, I just feel led to share something with you even before I get into the message today. And uh, I was telling the worship team this this morning. I told our leadership team as we gathered together in prayer. But over the last couple of weeks, uh, on Saturday night, I've been getting these of things to do in the middle of our worship songs, of words or particular phrases to sing that I've heard in other songs to bring them in. You heard that last week. Um, but this week in particular, I had a dream last night, and I was leading worship, and we were singing the, that, that part that says, you know, I hear the chains falling. And in the, in the dream, I felt like I was and God told me to put that in a song. And you know what I said to God? I said, well, if we're doing a song that includes chains, then I'll throw it in there. And I couldn't remember like there's a song that had chains in it at all. So I woke up this morning, I started going through the music, I'm like, oh man, there's a song on chains. So I have to put this in. And uh, But there's opportunities. I think, I think God sometimes speaks to us, sometimes in dreams and sometimes in other things, but this is really weird, by the way. This is not like normal for me. So I don't know who that's for. But I just want to share it with you because maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for me. That when God begins to do a work in your life and you begin to truly believe that God can break chains, then you begin to hear the sound of those chains falling to the ground. And maybe it was for you this morning. I don't know. But I do know that I want to be obedient to whatever I'm hearing. So when I said in that dream, if we're doing a song on chains, which I didn't think we were, I'll put it in there, Lord. And so what did I do this morning? I was looking up the chords and the weather for that song, and I put it in. I don't know who it's for. Maybe it's for you. I just felt led to share that this morning, in case it was. But you know, there's a story behind that. That wasn't just Pastor John going, because I'm not that creative. But that wasn't Pastor John going, I'm going to get really creative and ask Whoever that's for, I just wanted to share that with you today. Now we're, uh, we're in Mark chapter 16. Can we say praise the Lord? The last chapter of the book of Mark. There is no Mark 17. There is Mark 16. And we will do a review last week of all we've learned from the book of Mark. But it has been 34 weeks, I think, of the book of Mark. So we've been learning a lot as we go through, and I think there's a high value in going through scripture and going through chapter by chapter, because it helps us to see a bigger picture than just picking a scripture verse out and saying, 
Oh yeah, that's my verse. You begin to see a bigger picture that's going on here. The picture that we've been talking about has been defining moments. As we've gone through the, through the book of Mark, we've seen different characters and different people that had defining moments in their lives where they had to make some decisions about their lives. They had to make a decision where to go or how to get there. And many of us have had those experiences with people that God has placed in our lives at the right moment of time to help us get through what we were facing or to give us the advice that we needed, that we listened to and we obeyed. And there's all these defining moments that help to build our lives to make us the people that we are. This morning's sermon title is Identity Crisis. And you'll get that in just a few moments. And there's this story in the news. And it was really from a few years ago. This took place in Australia. This is before, before all the recent tragic fires that have been happening, the wildfires here in Australia. But this story was about a wild goat who thinks he's a kangaroo. Apparently, human beings aren't the only animals with identity crisis. A story from an Australian newspaper reported he may be suffering an identity crisis, but a wild goat who believes he's a kangaroo is providing an unlikely tourist attraction for southern residents. Nestled comfortably alongside the boomer or dominant male of the mob, the horned goat has been spotted living among the community of about 60 kangaroos in a large paddock on Commercial Road at Seaford Meadows. But wait a minute, maybe our goat is just being friendly, building bridges, crossing cultures, and so forth. The article notes that real estate agent Naomi Wills, who took the picture uh, of the friendly goat, noticed that he hangs around with the big male kangaroo, and two of them are tight and good friends. When we think about this goat that thinks he's a kangaroo, one of the things I want to talk about with the identity crisis is that we as an American church, as the American church, have a real identity crisis. We have forgotten who we are and what we've been placed on this earth to do. We've lost the mission that God has continually put forth in his word, not once, not twice, but several times throughout the word of God. Does it state the mission? that we should be all about here today. And Mark 16 reminds us of who we are as a church and what we're called to do and be. Before we get a little bit further into this identity crisis in the American church, let me just do a quick highlight of last week's message so that if you missed last week, you can kind of catch up a little bit. Last week was about moments of decision. And we talked about several different characters in the book of Mark that had moments of decisions in their lives. And one of those was a man named Pontius Pilate. And we know that when we read the scripture, when we read the story of Jesus, Pontius Pilate was a crowd pleaser because he found no fault with Jesus whatsoever, yet he lacked the courage to stand for what he believed. He wanted to avoid a riot that would, would reflect poorly on his leadership. So what did he do? He followed the crowd. He did what the crowd said to do. And how many of us have made very poor decisions in your history based on the decision of the crowd? Look what everybody else said you should do. We're all leading something, whether it's our lives or our families, our business or our church. And there are times when making the right decision requires unsafe and requires an unpopular decision. So we see this in Pilate 
instead of asking what was right, we asked what was possible. What was safe. And then we have, of course, what's the message there? Then we have Simon who had a forced decision. We know Simon was the person who the Roman centurions or the Roman soldiers asked to carry the cross of Jesus. Not really asked, it was kind of forced. They weren't asking nicely. So he did carry that cross for Jesus. And I believe that in that circumstance, as he had to make this decision, that he actually made the best of the situation. He, he didn't make the decision, it was made for him. But he made the best of the situation. And there's sometimes in our decisions that we don't have full control over who makes the decisions in our lives for certain things. But we do make the best of them as long as it's not sin, right? We just, I have to do it. So what's my sin to do? And we see that in this particular story with Simon, you know, he says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And why would he write that way? Oh, yeah. Romans. And the Romans knew who they were. See, after this whole circumstance, he made the best of the situation, and then he went home and he led his family to Christ. And it continued in the next generations. It changed his life forever. He had a positive attitude. And when we begin to do that, sometimes it's a forced decision, but we just have to go along. God blesses us for that. Then we have the Roman centurion who made his decision based on the facts. If anybody was able to make the character choice of who Jesus was and all the things that he saw Jesus have to do, and all the persecution and all the whipping and all the spitting on him and the slapping, this guy had the ability to make a choice about who Jesus Christ was. And he witnessed all of these things as Jesus hung on the cross. And it said that as he hung on that cross and the darkness came and all the things happened at the crucifixion of Christ, this man said, this Jesus was truly the Son of God. So when faced with the moment of decision, he looked at the facts. He looked at, he looked at everything that he saw there in that circumstance, and he made a decision. That yes, in fact, this Jesus that they had crucified, that they had whipped, that they had beaten, was the Son of God. And then the last decision makers were Joseph and Nicodemus. And they made a risky decision because they risked everything with the petition to ask for Jesus' body instead of it hanging there on the cross, which couldn't be done. It was going to end up being consigned to a mass grave. They went to Pilate, putting their reputation, their wealth, and their power on the line to ask for the body of Jesus Christ. And when faced with a moment of decision, don't be afraid to risk it all for the right thing, for the cause of Christ. Because you see, in the culture we live in, we know that these guys, at least at that moment, prior to this moment, these guys were what you would call secret disciples. They were part of the culture around them. But now it's time for them to do something. To not be secret anymore. And in the culture we live in, it's taboo to speak about your faith. It's looked down upon because that's supposed to be something that's private. But we need to get to the point as 
the body of Christ that we are tired of hiding. That we will no longer keep it a secret. There are moments that we might have to take some risks to do that. And that's where we left off in the story last time. These two secret disciples asking for the body of Christ and putting their reputations on the line. And in today's story, here we have them, the secret disciples coming out, and we have the real disciples, what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding. They were fearful. The two secret disciples come out, now the rest of them are hiding. You see, when Jesus died, they lost their identity. Their identity in that moment. You might remember in chapter 1 of Mark, we talked about identity. And we talked about specifically our personal identity in Christ. As children of God, who we're called to be and what we're called to. And we remember that Jesus, when he was baptized, who confirmed his identity as his son? It was the Father. So we see this confirmation of identity. But this morning, we're going to talk about the corporate identity of the church of Jesus Christ. It seems as, as if Mark first starts with our individual identity in Mark chapter 1. And now when we get to Mark chapter 16, we say who we are as a corporate body. What are the signs of the believers of Jesus Christ? So we leave up the story here with the disciples in hiding and where are they hiding? Why are they hiding? Why are they hiding? Now I have a very deep theological answer to this. A lot of study went into this particular fact. Why are they hiding? Um, they were afraid. <laughs> it took a long time to really study that in depth. But they were just scared. Right? If Jesus can be convicted to death with a false, with false witnesses in a sham trial, well, they thought we would be next. We're going to be next. So for the past three years, their identity had been defined as the disciples of the Messiah. This is the guy who went around healing people. This is the guy who raised the dead. This is the person who took on the religious elite of his day. They loved being around Jesus and seeing him perform all of these things, but now that moment has passed. All of that is seemingly gone. Their identity as disciples and followers of Christ seem to be changing now. And now they're hiding in a room. With that identity gone, they're afraid. See, all along we had missed it. It's not as if Jesus was a bad teacher. They just misunderstood everything he was trying to teach them over and over and over again. Jesus wasn't doing the things that they thought he was going to do as the Messiah. And they could only see through that lens of what they expected the Messiah to be. And they were still focused on the wrong thing. Are you? Are we focused on the wrong thing? Do you still think that the point of being a follower of Christ is to pray that you get that really good parking spot? <laughs> Is that the convincing proof of your faith? Really? Or maybe you think the point is to get God to change other people rather than changing you. I'm not sure if laughing or not. 
How do, are we to be identified by elephants and donkeys? Really? I don't think either one's a very good choice. I don't want to be an elephant or a donkey. Is that who we are? Are we identified by the celebrities that we follow? The pastors that we follow? The sports teams that we follow? Are we identified by our politics or by our denomination? Do we allow those things to become idols in our lives? The things that we put as priority over these other things. Priority over being a true follower of Christ. When Jesus appeared in that room that they were hiding, he reminded them of their true identity, of what they were called to do. You see, the women were not afraid. They went to the tomb of Jesus. They weren't in hiding. They went right out there. They wanted to see what happened. They wanted to make sure that they properly mourned and weep over the grave of Jesus because they weren't expecting him to be alive. But this is where they confirmed that Jesus Christ was no longer there. That he had risen. Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James, went to the tomb. And they found that it was empty. A young man or an angel told them that Jesus was not there. He had risen. And the women fled to tell the others of everything that they saw. And it says that they were trembling and bewildered. And they ran to tell the others. Now I just want to highlight this fact here. Just, just to clear this up before we move on. You may see a little message in your Bible here about Mark chapter 16 as we get past verses 9. And it might say something along the lines of the earlier manuscripts may not have had this particular part of the passage here. But I find it really hard to believe, and I'm not trying to you know, get into all the scholarship, there's a lot of stuff out there on this, but I find it really hard to believe that Mark, as he wrote this gospel, and he was trying to, to show Jesus as the victor over death, that it would end with women just standing there bewildered and running away. I feel like there's more to the story. But beyond that, even if you were to go, and, well, think about it for a minute. So Mark was trying to show that Christ was the victor, and then all of a sudden women are trembling and bewildered. The end. That's about a cliffhanger. I don't know. They're trembling and bewildered. The end. Over. I hate movies like that. So how do we end that? How do we handle this particular little message there? Here's, here's where I'm going to challenge you. The question that I would ask about this particular passage is this. Is what is written in alignment with what we read in the rest of Scripture? Is there anything that teaches something new or beyond in this particular passage? In alignment with a lot of the things that we see in the book of Acts of the Apostles. And there's no point of doctrine in particular that's affected by an absence or a presence. Although there have been some cults started on some of these things in time. That would have been snake handling. Trust this as God's word. 
just about believing something will happen, even though you don't see the evidence of it right now. That is part of faith, but it is not the complete story of faith. Complete faith is trusting God no matter what happens. Trusting His plan, trusting His love for you, period. No matter what happens, period. That's faith. Good, bad, you can believe for all the things that God you know, has in your life, and you can continue to believe with faith that God is going to do it, and often He does. But complete faith is also trusting Him that He knows what He's doing, even if you're not seeing it. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 14. It says, After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw Him was Mary Magdalene. The woman from whom he cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and they were weeping and told them what happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen them, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. You might know this in other uh, gospels as the road to Emmaus. They rushed back to tell the others. But no one believed them. Still later, he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief. Or other versions of the Bible say lack of faith. For their stubborn unbelief, he rebuked them because they refused to believe what they had seen after he raised, after he was raised from dead. Kind of interesting here. Jesus rebuked them for their lack of But the pinnacle of the story 
here is that he didn't just die, but that he rose again. He is risen. That's the big story. And the women were the first evangelists to preach the resurrection message. And who was their audience? Their audience were the disciples. And it turns out the disciples were the biggest skeptics of all. They didn't even believe them. And they didn't believe the people from Emmaus either. But you see, the gospel, the good news, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is as much a part of the gospel message as his sacrificial death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church here, and he says this in verse 12, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. We can walk out of here right now. I can end the message. My, anything I say today is useless if Christ did not rise from the dead. Verse 15, and we apostles would be all lying about God. For we have said that God raised Jesus Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are making more pain than anyone in this world. We are the people that the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that when we think it's the end, it's actually a new beginning. What seems like the end of something in your life may be just that new beginning that Christ is trying to do with you. Because the death and resurrection of Christ was not the end. It was only a new beginning for the disciples. It was a new challenge. It was a new day. And I'm here to say this morning that whatever in your life that's ending right now Whatever is ending in your life right now is going to lead you to a new beginning, a new purpose. The old person has passed away. A new person is being resurrected in you right now. He can take the dead heap of your life and make it new because he is the creator. He is the designer. He made it out of dust. He made us out of dust. And he can make it The resurrection made a new wasn't the end of the story. It was just the beginning of the next story. Of everything that we see in the book of Acts. A new mission for the lives of the disciples. It wasn't the end. See, we are a people who declare that there is new life and a resurrection of that which is dead in our lives when we give ourselves to him. Identity. Our identity should be People declaring the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. People declaring new life. The third thing that we are to be part of our identity as Christ followers are people on mission. People on mission. 
See, we're Christ. If Christ has been resurrected, as we just read, and we read everything that Paul said that our faith is useless, if he had not risen from the dead, then we can't go on with business as usual. Neither can the disciples. They couldn't just continue going on business as usual after Christ rose from the dead. Now, they were in hiding knowing that he was dead, but now that he's alive, that changes things, doesn't it? Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16, says, And then he told them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. So we are to be a people of mission, a people on mission. See, Jesus is still calling his followers from hiding behind closed doors to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. Not to some, but to everyone. There is no greater message that the church of Jesus Christ needs today than to know that we don't have to hide in fear behind closed doors, but he is calling us out on mission. When we face hostility and bitterness, we just want to shut ourselves away. It's easy to withdraw from the world. We have begun to believe the lie of the enemy, that the mission is optional. It's too hard. We'll never make a difference. The mission is still the mission. The mission of the church is still the church. It's still the mission of Jesus Christ for his church. In a book by Ed Stetzer, I'm reading this now, Christians in the Age of Outrage. I highly recommend this book. He says this, Mission isn't for the days that we feel it, or that we feel like it. It's only for, sorry, Mission isn't for the days we feel like it. It isn't only for cultures that are accepting or make it convenient to share the gospel. It isn't reserved for people with seminary degrees, online following, Super Bowl trophies, or home repair shows on television. Politicians are not going to do the mission for you, nor is the legislation you hope will pass. Corporations do not absolve you of this obligation, no matter how much chicken they serve or how red their Christmas cups are. At the heart of the church, what the church needs most is to reclaim the mission that's been put on it. That's our true identity. We don't have the mission, and we're not doing the mission. cannot outsource the mission to parachurch ministries. We can't find some technology to do it for us. And we can't entrust it to our politicians. The mission has to be the core of who we are as a community of believers. Anything that takes our focus from the mission has become an idol. Programs, Buildings, music, how the church will serve me. This is how we've always done it. We've tried that before. All can become idols that take our focus from the mission. Charles Spurgeon argued that neglecting our mission is on par with the vilest parasitism of the Christian age. He 
said if they love Christ, they must love sinners. If they love Jesus, they must see the extent See, the temptation will always be But in a closed room, after his death and resurrection, Jesus gave us the way to live. Why is the mission not optional? Because God has called us. Because we live in a broken, fragmented world in need of the good news of Jesus Christ, in need of hope. Because if we ignore the calling, there are a legion of false missionaries that will take our place. Because God, who did not spare his own son for us, has given us a mission. And he has promised victory. He's promised it. Our calling ends. Our mission ends. Only when Jesus returns or our life on this earth is finished. The mission must continue to be carried on. Lucky for us, he gave us some resources. How else are we to be identified as people of the Holy Spirit? Verse 17, there's also some signs he mentions. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be now, when we think about these signs all throughout the book of Acts, we see them happening in the book of Acts. We saw it stated, and then we see these things happening. And it continues with signs of followers and stories of missionaries even today, in our day. Paul and others, they cast out demons. We saw that all throughout Scripture. We did see that they spoke a new language, starting in Acts chapter 2, when the power of the Holy Spirit fell on those people. We see that Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake, and it did not harm him. He continued to live after that moment. Now, does that mean that we go chasing snakes, or that we put them in our church to see how much faith you have? That's where it's gone very wrong. Right? Because what does, what does, what are the temptations when Satan comes to Jesus? He said, throw yourself out in here, he's going to catch up. God never says it. He's going to catch up. You'll be fine. What was Jesus' response? Not tempted. What do you think handling a snake would be doing? Other than being stupid, but uh, that'd be tempting the Lord to come. He'd be sitting in that very act. But I just want to clear that up as well. That's not biblical. But Paul, you might remember the book of Acts, he was standing, he was setting a fire and the snake. Got bit of as a poison snake, and they all thought he was a god. He was dead because that snake poisoned us, and they waited and they watched. Also, don't drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> don't go drinking poison, expecting God to save you. Again, falls in the same line of tempting the Lord your God, right? That's not what he's saying, but he's saying if you're doing His work and you're out there doing that, and somebody tries to poison you. I like this last one. 
church at least now. I've received God's healing. I had asthma for a long time. God healed it immediately when I was praying. Done. Gone. Never again. Played sports. All my life. God is a healing God. He still works today in the same way he did back then. Because nothing has changed. It continues today. And when we lay hands on people, we pray bold prayers. Not because we're good enough, but because of the righteousness that he gives us and because he is good. And so we pray bold prayers. We believe that God heals and God changes things. So we are to be people of the Holy Spirit who are alive in us. And the Holy Spirit working through us to do miracles for His glory and great things for Him. So I close this morning just summing us all. How are we to be identified? What is our identity as the Church of Christ? What should our identity be? As Heritage Christian Church, we should be a people of faith. We should believe. We should get outside of our doors and share the gospel with those that we can, in both in word and deed. We need to help others, and we need to believe that God can do what he says he can do. And we also need to trust him when it's not going the way we think it should. We need to be people of the resurrection, and we continue to declare that God has new life for you. God who raised Christ from the dead, that same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. And we can declare the resurrection, that that thing that was once ending, that thing that is now ending, now God is bringing something new, that there is new life in Christ. We are to be people on mission, knowing that what our calling is to do is to go and to reach people with the gospel. And that may happen because we're just serving or helping them. That may, be, that may happen because we're helping to serve a need that they have. That may create opportunities for us to be able to share God's truth with them. But we're to be a people on mission, not hiding behind doors. Christ has risen. Therefore, we should be going out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the tools to do it. He didn't say, go do that on your own. Hope you guys make it. He said, I'm sending my Holy Spirit so that you can do all those things I've called you to do. And that's the last one, as people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our identity. This is how we go into all the world. This is our identity, because apart from this, and apart from Christ, it says in John 15, apart from Christ, apart from you, you are At the beginning of Mark, Mark promises to give us the beginning of the gospel of
you've been struggling and you know that there are things in your life that you've not given over to Christ. If you're here this morning and you know that there's things that are sins and things that you've done wrong,
long yesterday. I pray, Father, that you would make your identity very clear to us in the coming days, that you continually bring it to memory, Lord God, and the things that we need to be doing, that we're called to do, because we are your followers. This morning, I pray that you would continue to give open opportunities and open doors, Lord God, to share our faith with others in a way that is loving